medicine is actually a little behind mm -hmm. if you if you if you want to say that um particularly when it comes down to care of patients so it entered research fairly early and it was that was a field that was a kind of early early adapter mm -hmm. but that wasn't true for how we treat patients and that's finally changing to some degree but you know it's still kind of rusty if you ask me this episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. On today's episode, my guest actually um, is really excelled in also the academic field, although it's more than that. He has both his MD and his PhD um, he's a board-certified dermatologist, um, so we're definitely going to delve into that. Not only that, the fun part about this particular podcast is that people are very well-rounded. Um, he's an international handball referee. He also plays in the top tier of the Bundesliga as a tennis player in Germany. Welcome to the show, Christian Posch. Hi, Jesse. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. It's, you know, like we were talking about before we got going, I always have to restart the conversation for the actual recording, which is always like... A little odd because you don't typically restart a conversation with somebody once you've already started a conversation. Sure. <laughs> uh, but everybody seems to do pretty well with it, so I'm always like, "We're we're flexible. We're you know human beings. We're flexible with things. It's you know, it's gonna work out." So tell me about if you are on iTunes, you're missing out on YouTube. Christian's got a bookshelf behind him with I'm assuming fairly interesting books. Um, tell me what's going on there. <laughs> what's, what's going on behind me? Yeah. Well, there's quite a good variety of different books, um, all spanning from like arts and medicine to like all the new fields that open up right now, like deep medicine. It's a pretty fun book to read if you want to look mm -hmm. into that. Um, so all the new technologies basically now finally finding their way into medicine too. You know, we've had these new technologies for a while in all different kinds of aspects of life, but mm -hmm. medicine is actually a little behind, mm -hmm. if you if you if you want to say that. Um, particularly when it comes down to care of patients. So it entered research fairly early, and it was that was a field that was a kind of early early adapter, mm -hmm. but that wasn't true for how we treat patients, and that's finally changing to some degree. But, you know, it's still kind of rusty, if you ask me. Is it a matter of, like, I know, so in the U.S. we have the FDA and things have to go through them before they can be used through for medical treatment. Is it a matter of bureaucracy holding things back or, or is there, there something else at play? Uh, good question. I, I guess there are a few things actually holding it back. Um, there are some people who are just very traditional and they like pen and paper. Mm -hmm. One thing, the other thing would be that obviously you want to apply really high standards in terms of uh, privacy, data security. Um, mm -hmm. So that has always been an issue. You know, as soon as it's electronic, you basically open it up to to I wouldn't say to the whole to the whole world, but you open it up to certain individuals you might not want to share this kind of information with. Right. So, and it's also not the same as you would just lose a credit card. You know, you get just issued a new one with a new number on it. Mm -hmm. The thing is, if you lose medical records, that can be a pain in the butt, actually, because um, how would you restore that, right? So if it's gone and it's tied to your name, people have it. It's not going to change a whole lot, right? You right. might like only add something on it, but but that's it. So there's really no good way to kind of 
uh, restore once it's lost. So you can't get lost in the very first place. So I guess that makes people a little more conservative when it comes to new technologies. But uh, I think at the end of the day, people now realizing that that it's necessary. We have to do this kind of like uh, forward thinking more mm. on the medical field because it, yeah, pen, pen and paper just doesn't do it anymore. Yeah, let's keep it. <laughs> right. And like you said, you know, there's kind of a, a, an encryption issue with digital. It's like with the benefits of um, I know there are companies here in the U.S. that are working on digitizing medical records so that, you know, when you go from this hospital to that hospital or this care provider to that care provider, it's easy to just be like, hey, send over the record. You've got everything. You don't have to worry about weird, you know, faxes of doctor's notes and not understanding things. Yeah, you it's would digitized. think it's digitized. Yeah, it's go ahead. Like, but it's not. Not at all, actually. Right. You know, everybody runs his own system, his or her own system. Right. Uh, uh, they introduce features that they think are valuable. And then, you know, these, like, different ports and stuff, they don't really connect. And what you do if you have data in a different format? Well, try that in any other field. It's going to screw up the system. So it's not that easy to share stuff right now. Usually when you're within a system, like... I don't know, uh, Kaiser Permanente, you know, to just name one of them. Um, it, if you sting within the system, you, you're pretty fine. You, you're good. You're right. There's not a whole lot that can go wrong. So right. hospitals and doctors can share information. But as soon as you leave that closed up system, um, it's kind of getting a little more difficult to, to do that. So, yeah, there are pros and cons to it, you know. But the main problem is there is no standard. There is no um, consensus in the way this data should be used. And at the same time, that would be super valuable and important to do because, you know, that would be the source and basically the foundation for anything we want to put on top of that. Like just, mm -hmm. you know, big data analysis. Everybody talks about, like, artificial intelligence and neural networks and whatnot. But what you need for that is is a good foundation and that is annotated data you know that you can rely on and that is somewhat correct so if that's right. the case well like how would you analyze it right anything that comes out of it is going to be crap so right um, and I, i've talked to a few data scientists and it's like part of the problem is too is as you mentioned uh, some kind of normalcy a standardization of that data where it's like um my uh, girlfriend actually kind of works in this field um she works with um, a stroke unit at a local hospital and analyzes the data and makes sure that stroke patients are receiving the care that they need. But going back to the data, sometimes um, through other people that have entered the data, they'll like uh, say one field should be yes or no. And they'll enter kind of, maybe, sometimes. It's like, no, these are not, it's it's yes or no. It's a, it's a one or zero value. You can't start entering twos, threes, fours, and fives because then the data just falls apart. Yeah, but at the same time, I gotta gotta jump in here. It's not always black and white. Admitted. Right. Yeah, it's not that easy, right? So it is a scale, and maybe there should be another button like yes, no. I wouldn't say maybe, but maybe just include a range. You know, have a scale right. where you can just like move move things around, and even that would be more valuable than just leaving it blank, right? Right. Right. Well, it's like, but at the same time, it's like. There should be some, like you said, a scale even, and say, okay, what to what degree is this measure? Is it zero or is it ten? And then separately, along with that data, which you could use to standardize between patients, uh, some kind of notes field, which is 
you know, a way to annotate abnormalities without screwing with the data fields. Yep, and then you need natural language processing to actually yep. make that data too, because that can screw up the whole thing too. When yeah. you like, once you you call it cardiovascular disease, but actually meaning a stroke right. uh, or a heart attack. You know, what is it now? Right, right. And if it's just I, narrative text, that that leaves that open to the to the reader too. See, I, I kind of think of the problem as like. We, this is a very mundane example of this, but you know, talking about standardization between um, health systems, be it within the U.S. or U.S. to other countries or whatever it is, um, you know, we as a, a, as humans have trouble trying to get the same phone charger on all of our phones, let alone <laughs> the same yes. record system in all of our hospitals. Yes. So it's like even a you know in. I, I'm sure you remember when cell phones were first coming out and every single phone had a different charger and it was simply insanity. And fortunately, we seem to have mostly settled on the micro USB um, aside from like Apple products. But it, it, it took time to sort even that just very, very small oh, yeah. problem out. And just think of the waste of resources. Right. Like it's crazy. Yeah, so in, in the EU, there has been a discussion just recently where they actually want to mandate uh, a standard for chargers now. Like, just everybody has to use that one. Now, and every company comes in now from each angle and saying, like, what well, this feature is better and that's patented and whatnot. And now we're going to get reimbursed for our inventions and mm -hmm. a mess. Yeah, but it's the right thing to do. I agree. Yeah, I, it's like that's kind of the argument for government oversight. It's like, you know, some people want to go, small government don't interfere with anything but it's like there are some benefits of that where uh, you know a government has the ability to be like okay guys like this is ridiculous not only are we costing consumers money but it's just increasing the amount of waste that we have let's fix this you legislate it but at the same time i also think about the possibility for that to become a problem down the line where it's like say like right now say we adopt um, micro usb as the standard but then there becomes a faster, more effective charging method. Then you've got to re-legislate it. So it's like, I feel like if you legislate it, you've got to have some way to say, if, you know, 80% of companies producing these products decide on a new standard, then they're allowed to move to the new standard or something. And I imagine that for healthcare. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Which gets really standard. complicated. <laughs> well, it's a tough one. But yeah, it would be, would be useful for sure. Yeah, so um, you were telling me, obviously you're a board-certified dermatologist. I actually saw, um, well, we don't want to talk too much about this, but uh, on your Twitter you had posted uh, an image talking about coronavirus, and, and it, it was a, basically a meme about stay home unless you want to be intubated by a dermatologist. And I thought that was pretty amusing. Um, just get the light of the situation. Like kind you know. of like where you laugh and then you kind of choke. <laughs> Oh, then you're like, wait, that that sounds like a terrible situation. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why, like, I, I put on top of that, like, in all seriousness, like, stay home, guys. Yeah. And, because it's funny and it's not funny at, at the same time, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have friends in Italy, and this is a real, excuse my language, shit show. Yeah. You know, what they're having down there is really a big, big mess. And it's yeah. because the system is overwhelmed. And they can't handle it anymore. And you know mm -hmm. they have 
they have personnel doing things they haven't been trained for. And that's a major problem, you know, and, and they need to do things now and take care of things that they're not specialized in. And I mean, what's going to be the logic result of that kind of action, right? But at the same time, you've got to do it at least right. somehow instead of not doing anything. So right. uh, that's where this whole like post was going, right? I mean, yes, dermatologists right. then, by the way, in case you really get the, uh, intubated by dermatologists, you want to be intubated by me, but I actually did that before because I had some, <laughs> I had some training in the ICU. Yeah. But, uh, but that has been 10 years from now, so I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it right now again without yeah. any refresher. But, you know, uh, but that's that where this is going, right? It's 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 in some countries, in some areas, it's so bad that um, the real professionals are overwhelmed, need to stay home or sick themselves. So you get treatment by the second tier, third tier, and sometimes I wouldn't say even students. And mm. it's not how it should be. Right? right. Right. But at the same time, it's like it, it's it is the what I would consider a logical course of action, just when you become overwhelmed, you don't have the staff, you're going to go to people that are the next most knowledgeable. Like, you're not going to take me to the hospital and be like, intubate that guy. I'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no medical background at all. So obviously you're going to go to somebody who has some kind of medical background before you start picking up, you know, average Joe off the street to be like, hey, perform this complex medical procedure and don't kill somebody. Yeah. I agree fully, but you know this is line twenty-five, maybe, right? Right. We're talking about line three, four, and five. Right. So, and that can already get bad. So, yeah, uh, we don't have to go to like street show and, and ask him to intubate. Yeah. Before it gets bad. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I I just saw that, but it made me wonder um, because you also are doing research. Like, how much do you spend? Time in hospital? Or are you mostly in a uh, like more academic lab kind of setting? Like, how do you split your time uh, professionally? Right, right. So I actually do both. So okay. I see patients on a regular basis, actually, pretty much every day. And um, but I have a lot of protected time for the lab. So I run my own lab. I have a few people that work with me in that lab, and I have a ton of collaborators because this is how it's being done today. Like you have to have people and, and specialists in all different kinds of fields that help you with realizing certain projects. You know, it's getting so complicated these days to to get all these fancy techniques working. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, but I guess most of you have heard about CRISPR-Cas and mm -hmm. all these new sequencing techniques. You know, if you want to be really good at that kind of stuff, I mean, you have to spend significant time in that. But Nowadays, these projects not have like just one single technique, but they have like five, six, seven, ten, twenty. So you gotta have people to help you uh, um, make make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, but then, yes, I do see patients, and I'm the head of dermato oncology, so I see all of uh, skin cancer that works mm -hmm. in the Technical University of Munich here. That's what I was wondering. Since I mean, since your research is in um, skin cancer, I was just kind of wondering like what the crossover is with you and oncology, like, you know, how that meshes. Cause like I said, I only have kind of, um, vague delvings into medical hierarchy, um, and specialization. So it's like, obviously there's crossover, but there are also separate fields. So do, Very true. Is, is the crossover you, is that, is that where the link is? 
Uh, so if you mean crossover by different different specialties within medicine, right. like clinical medicine, right, right, uh, right. yes, and that varies from country to country. So if you if you look at the Dach region, like Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, okay. um, those are um, areas where dermatology is a very, very broad and open field. Okay. So you, within dermatology, you can actually actually specialize in pediatric dermatology. You can specialize in uh, dermato-oncology, histopathology. Okay infectious diseases in, in auto-inflammatory diseases and we are we're actually getting training in all these different sub specialties mm -hmm. um, if you have enough people you can actually like even make small departments of it and that's what we're having here so that's a really nice setup um, in other countries like in the US and I've spent quite some time there it's a little different for example if we talk about skin cancer um, the deadliest one being melanoma so the mm -hmm. kind of, of skin cancer right um, if you talk about that, um, in the U.S., you might get diagnosed by a dermatologist. So he picks up a mole that doesn't look good and mm -hmm. cuts it out and turns out to be melanoma. Um, but what happens next is you're going to be sent to a surgeon to do surgery, take a biopsy of lymph nodes and stuff. Mm -hmm. The surgeon is done. Is You're going to get referred to a medical oncologist to take care of, if, if needed, right, some sort of medical treatment. Mm -hmm. And dermatology basically just to, does the follow-up on all the remaining moles you have, right, to make sure they don't develop any new ones. So um, here it's different. So if a melanoma patient comes to my unit, um, we basically diagnose and treat them from very beginning to hopefully a healthy outcome, mm -hmm. um, but that even ranges into uh, hospice care, into um, you know palliative treatment, where right. where you kind of have an end of life life situation. Mm -hmm. So this happens all at at one spot, and arguably you can think that that might actually be preferred because as we talked about, like information getting lost on the way or not right. be, to to be shared, right? Um, it stays within our department because we diagnose it, then we have a dermatosurgeon, so a dermatologist who specialized in surgery and does all the necessary surgeries, except for like the really big ones. Um, and then they come back to us and they actually get their med medical treatment and follow up. So mm -hmm. it stays all under one hood and you have always one point that collects all the data and is kind of like for patients, the central, um, uh, you know, not, if you wish, mm. where he gets or he she gets uh, his or her information from, and where where they can go to if if they have any questions. So I I do like that kind of system, but arguably both of them work. You know. So yeah, well, I was thinking about like like you're talking about changing standards. At this point, I don't know how you would. It's like even if you could say definitively, you know, one system or the other is better, how you would enforce like a changeover in either direction just because of how people are already specialized you'd have to get them to re-specialize yeah. trying to retrain an entire medical force and i know we're like in the u.s we're short on doctors so i know like i my college roommate and his wife are both doctors and you know he's told me basically once you're board certified you can pretty much go wherever you want because there's need everywhere like there's so much need so try try to retrain the, like an entire uh, uh, medical system when you already have a shortage just seems in short bananas. Yeah. Um, even if you could, like I said, prove one way or the other was better. 
Yeah, and it, and that would even be hard to prove, right? How would you even right. prove that? Right? Right. Could, you could basically measure it by the outcome of patients. Right. That seems to be fairly the same. So what's the argument to doing one or the other? Then you can compare it in terms of expenses, like mm -hmm. what costs more for the same care, for the same outcome. Right. That's super hard because there are very different charges for, for different procedures and, and what whatever is being done right in different yeah. countries. So, so that's that's really hard to do, and all these medical systems are basically gr have been grown over time. Mm -hmm. So to really change anything in that kind of perspective is is, is going to be really hard. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, talking about shortage of doctors, I mean, I was actually very interested in staying in the U.S. after I finished my postdoc over there, mm -hmm. and I talked to a few people, actually some some you know people who could make that kind of de decision, and. And this is where it gets complicated. So I was a board-certified dermatologist at the time already, but what the U.S. system would require me to do would actually be to start residency again, mm -hmm. get board-certified again, which I did not um, particularly have great interest in because right. I had already. And I studied at two really good universities, so I do that all over again. Right. And he said uh, the only reason for that is if you want to work at a great hospital, let's say um, UCSF for that matter, that's where I spend some time, um, they are considered a tertiary um, um, facility. So you first go to family practitioner, right? If it doesn't know what to do, you go to the specialist, outpatient specialist. If they don't know what to do, they send you to a university clinic. So if you get to a university clinic, um, insurance companies expect every doctor working there to be board certified. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you don't get money. You don't get reimbursed for all the services you provide. Right. To board certified, you actually need to be training in the US because you need to have residence in the US. So this is where you know all things uh, come together. The mm -hmm. Not to have me, for example, seeing patients in the US is because they don't get reimbursed for it. Mm -hmm. Even though I would qualify in like by I guess pretty all measures, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, it's, I I can see both arguments too. Where it's like on the one hand, it's like with the system as I understand from you explaining it, where we say okay, you have to have you know residency in the U.S. and have gone through one of our systems because we're more familiar with the measures we've put in place before you can be board certified. So it's like, okay, you, you just like in our public school system, we have standardized testing. It's like the, trying to measure the efficacy and knowledge of a particular person. So it's like, okay, I, I get that. But at the same time, it's like, clearly you are licensed to practice medicine in another country. And we're not talking about like a just developing country. You know, it's not like your standard of care is going to be lower or or that you're just like hanging out in a hut or something and you don't know what you're doing. So it seems like there should be some way to say, you know, this is an equivalent certification. This is an equivalent, you know, level of knowledge so that you can have crossover. But I don't know. We're, I mean, we're obviously not going to solve all of healthcare's problems today. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you spend time on, I guess you spend time on cancer research, but let, let's, um, for listeners that don't know, um, let's start with the basic thing that 
you know, we have all these kind of charities here in the U.S. to fight cancer is the, is the phrase. I'm sure you've seen that. Um, so let's start with just the fact that cancer is not one thing. Oh, yeah. Um, and then can you tell me, so can you expand on that? And then also tell me a little bit more about what you are researching in particular. Yeah, sure. Um, very good point. Cancer is not just one thing. Uh, could, couldn't agree more, frankly. Um, yeah. It is many, many things. And if you want to summarize it on the one term, it's an age-related disease. If, if, you know, if you want to look at it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm trying to do in, I'm actually shifting my research focus in, into that direction. Because it, if you look at the numbers, it's quite funny. Um, if we get a really great um, cancer care uh, program or even treatments that are effective in, let's put out a number there, 80% of the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fiction for many types of cancers of now. But if we just assume that, you would probably increase lifespan by maybe two to four years. Mm-hmm. That's what you get with that kind of uh, achievement, right? Because why? You would die from other diseases like uh, infections, from uh, cardiovascular disease, for, from all other kinds of neurological diseases, big one, yeah? So all these are t- heavily tied to aging. So while we were able to actually expand or increase the number of people reaching higher age, like the, 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 the actual lifespan hasn't expanded a whole lot, mm-hmm. right? So back in the days, people would die when they were younger, so the average life expectancy was shorter. Right. But still, people were getting to ages of 85, 90 sometimes, right? Even 100 mm-hmm. years old. It was rare, but it happened. Now more people uh, get to that point where they like enter 80, 90s, mm-hmm. um, but still they're not getting much older than that, right? So right. the um, total lifespan hasn't changed a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we talk about lifespan, obviously you want to increase healthy life. You, you don't want to be miserable and and, and sick and uh, being like COVID times on a ventilator, right? That that's, right. that's nothing anybody wants. So you want healthy more years. And why, why do we talk about that? I mean, cancer is probably one of, the, um, one of those diseases that are most linked to aging. Um, so if you age by a decade, you increase your likelihood of cancer, like zigfold. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's a much higher uh, chance of developing cancer of all different kinds um, than any of the known toxins we know. And we mm-hmm. talk right? So, and then, so tackling aging and in this process of aging might actually also lie some of the cure to all different kinds of diseases, including cancer. Um, You not only cure one of them, but you might attack all different kinds of problems later on in life. So as a model, I used cancer because that's what I specialized in. That's what I know most about, Mm -hmm. but I think there lies actually way more in that "Quote unquote" model of disease uh, called cancer that will tell us more about uh, the disease of aging, and I'm I'm just super curious how in my field melanoma is going to tell me more about that. So we'll see. Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, that's from I'm being a little obtuse, but from from a medical standpoint, I mean, the the entire goal essentially is life extension, right? We're we're trying to 
rid rid ourselves of all diseases and keep people living as long as they possibly can. So once you get past the hurdle of, you know, cancer or, or, you know, cardiovascular disease or neurological conditions killing people, then you say, okay, now do we, how do we actually extend lifespan? Cause we've gotten past all these other biological barriers. So how far can we push it? But that goes, and, that goes, right. and that's not, that's, that's one problem. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but so one thing I, I don't know. So that's why I'm asking you. Um, I had read something about, um, and I don't know if this is somebody's opinion, but it sticks out of my head that um, supposedly the brain has some kind of finite capacity to operate over time. Like it, as an unmedical term, goes to mush over a certain period of time. Is that also a matter of, um, you know, being able to extend like the, the capacity for the brain to fix itself? Or is it simply a matter of like, like a car where you can drive a car for so many miles and if you take care of it, you can get more miles out of it, but eventually like the machinery is going to wear out. Yeah. It's probably going to wear out at some point, but there is no reason to believe that we can't, that it can't be uh, beyond 110. Mm. Right. Why not? Or even more. Right? There's right. Some, some people out there that aggressively uh, think that 130 is going to be possible in, a f in just a few decades. Mm -hmm. um, but we are not quite there yet, I would say. Right. So, yes, it's about maintenance and it's prevention for a big part. Um, but again, these, these two mechanisms of aging and developing disease are tightly interconnected. So if you're tackling aging, you're actually preventing some age-related diseases like cardiovascular, neurological diseases, cancer, what's on. What's on. Mm -hmm. um, you're preventing those altogether. So, you know, you basically, as we say here, you kill two flies with one clap. Yeah. Uh, I think it's birds in the U.S., right? Yeah, two birds with one stone. Well, two birds with one stone. <laughs> it's much more brutal if you ask me. But A little bit. <laughs> just going to flies here. Yeah. So I, I think this kind of begs the question, and this isn't your area of specialty, but um, the, I think it begs the question, should we extend people's lifespan? Sure, why not? Well, I mean, okay, so here's a big issue right now in the U.S., and that's basically class warfare where you have, um, you know, a, a disproportionate amount of wealth uh, being generated for the top, I'll say 1%, but it's really like 0.1%, 0.5%, um, that have, you know, so it's like the top 1% have 80% of the wealth in the U.S. Now, some form of, regardless of the economic system, often you end up with this dichotomy, this split where the top, small percent has a large portion of wealth. So if you extend life, then you have those same people continuing to exist um, for a longer period of time, which also allows their wealth to continue to compound because compounding interest, um, that nice exponential curve. And then you have the possibility of stagnation and a lack of innovation because there is no forced changeover in the changing of the guard and in, in who's in charge by by extending lifespan. So that's where I kind of wonder, you know, obviously, well not maybe not obviously, but you know, as a human being, 
I feel like I and probably many of us have this kind of innate drive to continue living as long as we possibly can, right? That seems like a natural characteristic. We want to be alive. Um, so it's like I get it in terms of that, thinking I want to live longer, I want to live as long as I possibly can. But I also think about, you know, what happens when things go wrong and we get unintended consequences. So that's kind of why I ask. Sure, yeah, no, I totally get it. Like, and this is a legit, uh, you know, concern. Um, at the same time, you know, talking about governmental regulation, I mean, mm -hmm. we have that problem already, you know? Right. And, <clears throat> but you, you could look at it from a different angle too. You could say that, you know, you're not only extending the life of the 0.1% you're talking about, but you're also extending the life of let's say the next 20% that are highly mm -hmm. capable, but not starting off with uh, a billion in the bank account. Right. So you're giving those people um, more time to work with and to develop what they have. So you could also think that the, the proportions are going to shift in favor of the ones that are not in these like 0.1% of mm -hmm. the biggest. So nobody really knows what's gonna happen obviously. Right. So our history has told us that innovation actually has benefited uh, humankind. Mm -hmm. You know, within a time, it has never been so good. Like it has never been that good uh, as in the times we're living right now. Right. So there's no reason, and, and that came with technology and it came with um, actually making our collective knowledge bigger and greater than it can be for individuals or even groups. Mm -hmm. You know, like starting with the book press, you know, going way back, right? Yeah able to write things down so that somebody else can read it and not only need to hear about it and forget it again but like actually read it and maintain that kind of knowledge you know that's the foundation for all these developments and now it's obviously the internet and 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 whatnot wikipedia you, you name it right yeah so it's it's uh, collective knowledge that is pushing us um, way further that we that we were would be um, if we didn't have these technologies and these advances. So, mm -hmm. I mean, my argument would be that that any kind of um, um, innovation was actually, if any, was helping humankind, not disregarding that there have been major fallbacks and just talking about like nuclear uh, fusions and bombs and you know. But at the end of the day. We do have power, and I remember that the U.S. has quite a few power plants that are uh, nuclear-driven. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't have that if that uh, didn't happen. Yeah, mm -hmm. it would have prevented two atomic bombs being dropped over Japan. But there's always going to be a trade-off for the good and for the worse. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it is always going to shift towards the good because that's what we like inherently trying to do. Right. I, I'm an optimist in this regard. <laughs> there's um. My one of my uh, mentors, there's a phrase for what you're describing is high tides raise all boats. So, you know, and, and that's yeah. I actually I personally subscribe to that philosophy, but I do see the, the counter philosophy where people just, you know, say like right now, that's very popular, especially with, you know, kind of economic devastation that's going on at the moment has intensified it. This idea about like eat the rich and. Uh, you know, trying to overthrow this rich ruling class. I don't think you ever get rid of that, no matter what system you end up with, personally. Um, but it, 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 I think it belies the fact that, like you mentioned, these 
innovations in technology end up benefiting everybody. But I think it's easy, especially now with social media and you have all these images of people driving around in Ferraris and stuff. It's like, well, I can't afford a Ferrari. What, you know, why can't I afford a Ferrari? I, then you feel bad. It's like this tendency towards pessimism that I think is natural for a lot of people where it's like, I don't have what they have, so I must be doing poorly because you can't really compare with even people a hundred years ago. You know, you didn't live then you live now and you really don't have a whole lot of connection to that time period to be like, Oh, like I've got a washing machine and you know, I, I can order food and have it delivered to my house and like all of these very nice services. But that's, that's an inherent trait of humankind is not only try to live as long as we can it's it's also to compare all the time right. we compare ourselves to anything and any like anybody yeah. uh, everybody all the time and that's not always healthy i would say so yeah um, just compare it to a former version of yourself that would be a healthy way to approach it because if you're doing better then i guess you did something right right yeah if if not well maybe you want to change something so yeah yeah but you know everybody has his their own approach to this kind of problem yeah yeah oh, I, it's like i come from a running background and that is basically the crooks of how a lot of my coaches a- approach running where it's like yes you're like so you're running a race you want to win but somebody's gonna win and everybody else is not so you can either focus on that or you can say okay last week i ran this that time and this week i'm you know 30 seconds faster or 20 seconds whatever it is so I'm personally improving and the, their thought or philosophy was basically like, if you worry about what you are doing, the clock and the place will take care of itself. Yes. Sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess you need a healthy balance for, for right. both. Right. I mean, obviously right. you have to, you can't always just compare uh, your own times, right? It's not going to, uh, push it to the limits that sometimes necessary, especially in like uh, you know sports. Uh, very nice transition, by the way. To, <laughs> to, to, to I've done this before. <laughs> Sorry, chat. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, you have to compare yourself to others too, right? But that shouldn't be your major source of uh, reward or regret, right? Right. So I think about when we compare. It's, it's to me, it's almost a matter of saying, okay. When I compare, it gives me the idea of what is humanly possible. It doesn't necessarily give me an accurate portrayal of what's possible with my body, but I know that it could be possible. And the only way to find that out is to pursue it. Right. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's talk about handball. Sure. Um, did you know what handball was? I did. I did. I, I went to look up uh, the rules and stuff because it's been a while since I've seen anything handball related. Um, I can't remember why. I, I feel like I watched like a short documentary or something on handball a couple of years ago, though I have no idea why because it's not <laughs> popular in the U.S. Uh, just about at all. Nope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame, by the way. It's a shame. It's such a nice sport. Well, it's like, yeah, I feel like it's a game too. So, obviously, you know, American football is hugely popular. And I always feel like the downfall of 
how popular it is, and because we're a sports-obsessed nation, is that once people reach adulthood, nobody's playing American football as an adult anymore, unless you're a professional. And there's only a very small amount of those people. And even those people, the average the average career in the NFL is like three, four years. Yeah. You know, it's not very long. Um, so if if you specialized in that as a kid or you know, growing up, well now what do you do? Whereas like handball, although it's can be very aggressive, like you could play that lar- longer into life than you can uh-huh. American. No? No, not at all. You don't think so? No. Average average age when people retire from handball is also like thirty-five. Sometimes okay. the the goalkeepers. Yeah, well, I'm talking about. I'm talking about. Yeah. People are like people are giving up on sport at twenty. Yeah, that might be early. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, we we don't like finish at twenty. If you're like uh, professional. Yeah, I'm not thinking like eight-year-olds are out there playing handball. Yeah, I'm just saying like. <laughs> but it's also not forty-year-olds. Okay. They, they retire too. Uh, except for some goalkeepers, that's that's the one like position yeah. field. They're they're sometimes a little older, yeah. but all the other ones, they're usually you retire like 35, 38, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Why is it not popular in the U.S.? I've asked myself this question for a long time, and I really haven't come to a good conclusion yet. I mean, everybody I show this sport, you know, and not too many people know about it in the first place. Um, everybody I show this and introduce this sport to you. Um, they're fascinated. They love it. Yeah. It's fast, you know. It's it's physical. Um, you have a lot of goals, so there's a lot of score happening, right? It yeah, changes. people like that. It, it can change from a win, uh, like a big win on one side, uh, to a loss on that side within yeah. five minutes. Um, so it has all the elements that one would like, actually, especially knowing the the U.S. Uh, sport yeah. addicts. Yep. So, and yet it really didn't take off in the U.S. I mean, there have been I think two spikes in mm-hmm. popularity when it comes to handball, and and one was obviously after the Olympics, right? Uh, because the American team did actually fairly well. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, frankly, there is no reason to believe where Americans shouldn't be good at that sport. Yes, right. they have no like history in the sense that they didn't play it for for I don't know hundred years, but at the same time, you have fantastic athletes in the U.S. Right. Right. Why should they be able to play handball like we do in Europe, right? Yeah. Uh, um, but it's all about popularity. Some people have said that the lack of presence in day-to-day life and also in the media is that there are not enough breaks. So there can't be any commercials, and that's why TV stations are not so interested, you know? Yeah, but that's that's a that's a poor argument. And, and I'll give that. you a reason why. Because now it is taken over 20 years but like mls here so we are obviously called soccer you would just call it football but i think some country i don't remember which germany does germany use football or soccer is football right yeah because yeah. then different european countries some say soccer most say football and I, I get confused on who says what i just default to football if it's europe anyway it's taken 20 some odd years from like league foundation to now like uh, you know like the our team here in town um we've had and maybe it's been broken now but we've had uh sold out stadium for 120 matches or something which were just unheard of you know 20 years ago And, and so it's taken time but there there's no breaks i mean there's I guess there's injury breaks and that, that kind of thing. But generally speaking, 
there are not breaks aside from halftime for soccer. So it's very true. It's a good understanding. But yeah. what do they do? They have scholarships. Yeah. They introduce it in schools as little as like the four, three, four-year-olds are playing yep. it. Yeah. Uh, they grow up with the sport, and then they have the opportunity to go to college and actually play uh, soccer, right? Yep. So yep. that's the foundation, obviously. And then you know, if enough people play it and are interested in it, then everybody else is going to pick it up too. I agree with that fully. Yeah. 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 So, so then, so how do we so how do we introduce handball to the U.S.? How do we get it integrated into the system? Well, we have a good another good chance uh, at the Olympics in L.A. in 2028, I guess. Okay. Now is the time to build the foundation to actually have coaches, facilities, schools, gyms, mm-hmm. place because there's going to be a run uh, for handball after the Olympic Games in L.A. And last time, you know, the U.S. was really not prepared for that kind of excitement when it came to handball. Mm-hmm. So the, the spike basically, like, you know, the curve flattened out, like to speak in Corona terms. Right. The flat, like the curve flattened out really quickly. And so uh, all that interest got lost really quickly again, which is a shame. Um, and right now, you know, handball hasn't picked up that kind of spark in, in a long time. So. There's a good chance 2028 to make that happen again, but you know it's preparing time now, and that starts with coaches, uh, all the facilities, obviously, but referees uh, just as much. Obviously, I have to talk about referees, you know, being one myself. Right. right. Obviously, you know, nobody talks about referees. There was, you know, they're there too. The kind yeah. of necessary, necessary evil, but guess what? There is no game without referees. Right. So. Um, you have to think about these kind of things too, and uh, I just hope that they um, work on that really closely and and with smart people making that happen. Yeah, I think a couple things. If you could get like a referee that could be a good commentator, and then if you start like streaming handball on the internet first, because you know you don't have to worry about trying to get a major channels the major tv station to pick it up start popularizing it that way and kind of use that as a method kind of like so like i do triathlon and um the various organizations in charge of triathlon have been working on like streaming races online and on their own platform facebook and in their own platforms to try to popularize the sport more especially because we've kind of hit a, a plateau in terms of growth in the sport in the U.S. It really got popular for a while, and it's kind of flattened off and come down a little bit, um, probably in part because of the cost of it. Um, but I was just thinking about, like, my brother's a referee, and he refs for several different sports, baseball, football, basketball. I don't know. He loves being a ref. And it's fun to watch, like, football games with him, American football, because – he you know, sees cool. all these things yeah, that we don't see. Yeah. Which means if you can get somebody that's a good personality and like it's a good commentator, they can be like actually point out these things and be like, though this is what's happening, see it on the replay, like you know, and give that in-depth analysis. Cause I, I'm sure you may have seen ESPN. People are obsessed with the numbers. They want all the numbers about everything. There's just like this. <laughs> Just yeah. ridiculous stat culture in sports here where it's like every single uh, game or or match, depending on what sport we're talking about, somehow people want a new record. It's like it's like you watch watching football. It's like, yeah, most most scores by a 
30-year-old linebacker who has a tattoo on his right arm and yeah, right. <laughs> his birthday was today or something. Like, it's yeah. <laughs> there's this yeah. culture of, like, what's the weirdest record we could come up with? Uh-huh. So if you could get that figured out for handball, I think you could start to get people on board. Oh, yeah. I got to sh- give a shout-out to USA, USA Team Handball. Um, so they've been streaming the national championships, at least, uh, for the last at least five years in a way that is done, I would say, really decent. You know, it's a, they did a decent job, and they have two really fun guys commentating it. Uh-huh. They're not referees, but they're really knowledgeable, and they, they, they know what they're talking about. Are they former players? Yeah, exactly, former players. Okay. So, and they have a good head on their shoulders, and it's actually fun to listen to them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if, you, if you're interested in that, tune in. Uh, USA Team Handball, um, they usually stream the national championships. Right now, they've been canceled. Um, yeah. The corona outbreak, so we'll see if it happens later in the year. Uh, usually, I'm there, too, so to support the American referees a little bit, you know. Yeah. I actually, when I was a international referee, so I'm Austrian by descent, and um, you know, I live in Germany. But I spent a long time in the U.S. And when I was in the U.S., um, I, um, I did refing already long, long time before that. But the U.S. Federation asked if I wanted to um, uh, pursue a career in refereeing um, on a higher level, mm-hmm. and that's how I ended up refereeing and representing actually the U.S. and, and U.S. team handball. Mm-hmm. So for all these uh, tournaments that I went to. Um, I was actually under the U.S. flag, which is funny because I'm not a U.S. citizen. <laughs> My wife is, but I'm not. Yeah. So, um, and that turned out to be actually the problem that I'm not an IHF referee anymore. So okay. I'm international, but only for the Pan American Federation, okay. so the entire American continent. And obviously, I ref here in in the major leagues in uh, in Austria and. Sometimes just for fun here in Germany too, but I, like with all the work that's going on, I can only devote so much time to it. Right. Um, but so I keep it up as a fun hobby, and I try to go to tournaments and stuff as, as often as I can. But that has gone down in numbers quite a bit. So. So it's like a is there like a certification you have to keep like re-upping to do yeah. with the IHF? I, I would actually have all these certifications and I would pass all the physical and rule tests and, and whatnot. The problem was actually really my, my uh, status, my status uh, not being a U.S. Uh, resident or okay. for that matter, actually not being a U.S. citizen. Okay. Um, which apparently got them into problems because if you start refereeing, I'm on the, under the U.S. flag and I'm now refereeing, let's say, the Austrian national team. Mm-hmm. Would that be a conflict of interest because I'm Austrian? Right. I don't think it is um, at all, frankly. I yeah. think it's a silly argument to, to make, but that's how, how things run these days. Right. If, if you live in the hometown of your sports team, whatever that might be, uh, you're unlikely to ref that team. Right. Uh, uh, I think a good referee can separate these two things. Mm-hmm. And just tries to do a decent job and is not being held back by, you know, nationality or whatnot. Yeah. 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 I was like, the, there's a saying and I, I'm sure I'll butcher it, but it's, it's something along the lines of like, like when a ref does their job, you don't even notice them. That's right. 
Like they don't interrupt the yeah. game; they only officiate it. Like it, it, all the calls that they make are basically things you would expect and agree with. Yeah, because it's like that they're still right, and that's the that's the hard right, <laughs> right. Uh, right. But but you you're totally right. I mean, what how you would like how I would like to see my job as a referee uh, on the field is basically to just lead two game two teams who want to play uh, a game, want to do a sport, a, sp a certain sport, and you help them to stay within the rules. You know, because everybody's right. going to try to bend these rules as far as right. they can, and yeah. then you need someone from the outside to say like, well, that's too much, my friend. We're going to go the other direction now. Yeah. So you need it. Um, at the same time, it's not about you for like most obvious reasons, right? It's about the two teams playing each other, and you shouldn't interfere with that. Yeah, yeah, um, fully agree with that. Yeah, the, agree on all different kinds of things here. <laughs> the the biggest, you know, the biggest irritation I get, um, like when I'm watching soccer and I'm watching. So I live in Kansas City, so Sporting Kansas City is our soccer team. Anytime I'm watching Sporting, is that. It, you get used to the refs. Like, I, you know, you get familiar with the refs is what I mean. Like, you're like, okay, I know this one and that one. And the thing that is most irritating to me is when we're watching different matches and the officiating is inconsistent between referees. Yeah. Like, one, like, one ref will give you a yellow card if you sneeze at another player. And then the other one won't even think about it if – you know, somebody comes through somebody's ankles and then they walk off the field with a broken ankle. They're like, yeah, it was fine. It was a clean tackle. Like, no, it wasn't. They weren't anywhere near the ball. <laughs> just this, this lack of consistency bothers me just because it's like, you know, as you mentioned, your, your job basically should be to enforce the rules of the game, not to interpret or make up the rules of the game, but just this is what it is. You know, this is how it is. This is how I call it. Yeah, yeah. But there seems to be such inconsistency between them. That's probably the thing that is kind of bothers me the most. Yeah, I, I can't understand where you're coming from. At the same time, I got to tell you that um, the rule book is also a living organism. Kind of right. It's, it's not black and white here either. Yeah. And if you give a, a rule book, maybe soccer, handball, you name it, if you give that kind of... Uh, piece of law if you wish yeah if you mm -hmm. give that to an attorney he would put it in the shredder because yeah. none of it would hold to any of uh, the principles that are applied in law you know right because they're applied for a sport so they are way softer they, there's room for interpretation and to some degree that needs to be that case because if mm -hmm. you execute and enforce every single rule the way it's written down on paper uh, there wouldn't be a game right you know? It's, it would just be interruptions left and right and all the time. So that's a growing organism itself. And that's why you need, a, as a referee, for example, you need to have a lot of games, a lot of different uh, teams, you know, that you kind of blend in, if you wish. Right? Yeah. yeah. And yet, yes, every referee is going to have its own uh, trademark, you know, and there's some referees who are super strict on on behaving yeah like sneezing into someone's face right now would be a red card. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it depends. It depends again. It depends on the context. If you just look at the action and you take it out of context, um, it might be nothing or it might be a red card. Right? right. So it really, and you might actually have a different view on that kind of situation yourself. Right. 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 So you can see how complicated it can get. And from yeah. a serious perspective, 
I mean, the referee is always wrong, you know, especially. <laughs> somebody is going to disagree. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many people. Somebody's going to disagree. See, but that's the easy part about refing. It's not your job to satisfy the most people. It's your job to just like have these teams stay with the rules, you know, right. because yeah. somebody's always going to be unhappy. You know, I remember right. I ref the game with my colleague. He's actually from Denmark, so he's also not American, but we ref for the U.S. Um, we've refed at the Pan American Championships, mm -hmm. and uh, we had a fairly uh, high-level game to South American countries, and they're big rivals. You know, the gym was packed, and we had to throw out one of the main players of the home team in like after five minutes or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like very early in the game. Right. I. That's the kind of situation uh, you should mentally put yourself in, trying to be that referee. That <laughs> yeah, uh, it's you. You really got to be sure what you're doing in that. Yeah, moment, yeah, because yeah. there is going to be pressure from the outside, big time. So, yeah. but if you take the point, the standpoint of saying, um, not I don't care. That's the wrong way to put it. But mm -hmm. oh, somebody's always going to be unhappy with it. But if I think that is the right decision, you have to take it. That's your job. Yeah. And that's kind of the comforting uh, kind of approach that I've taken over the last, uh, for 20 years now. Um, and that has always helped and actually always kept me on the safe side. So, yeah. I kind of think about, you know, you mentioned um, context matters. And I was thinking about soccer at the time. Yeah. And it's like, the with the rules being a living rule book what the the thing that comes to mind immediately is playing advantage when there's been a foul like a clear foul was committed against the team but that team still has the ball and is going towards a scoring opportunity yeah. you don't stop them because they have the momentum and you know yeah. field advantage even though it was against the rules that the foul was committed it technically should be stopped yeah. but the refs are like it doesn't make sense because you would be hindering them instead of helping them, which is what the rule is supposed to be doing. Exactly. And in handball, that's the creme de la creme of refing. You know, if yeah. you realize what's happening in front of you and you see that there is actually an advantage resulting from an unfair tackle or something, right? Mm -hmm. And they're still able to pass on the ball and they are able to score. So you obviously don't want to interrupt here. Right. But... Uh, the the handball rule, and I think it's fair, it's the same in in soccer too. Um, you can still punish later on. Yeah, you, you're not like prohibited to like give a yellow card or in, in handball it would be two minutes suspension, right? Yeah. Go out, sit on the bench for some time and think of what you what you just did. Now, you can still <laughs> do that after the fact, right? That's, yeah. You know, there's it's never too time to to enforce that if it yeah. was indeed unfair and uh, hard tackle. So. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the uh, really hard part of refereeing. Yeah. Um, Christian, we're starting to run out of time. And I know we're running over because we had issues with our time zones this morning. <laughs> um, so uh, what you may not have seen with the uh, the interviews that Joe sent you, because they were earlier on from last year. This year, I'm asking everybody a, a, a different question at the end of episodes. Um, so this year, I'm asking everybody, what do you think the purpose of sport is? Okay. That's a big one. <laughs> That's a big one. You know, right now, everybody's talking about Corona and sports is actually at a complete halt mm -hmm. right now. 
I mean, it might actually be the best time to judge on that kind of question, even though it's such a big one. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the purpose? The purpose is a big part of it is, I think, is entertainment. But there are so many other elements to it. You know, people do sports for recreation. They do it for staying healthy and fit. Actually, that's, you know, a very good tool for ca uh, counteracting aging, by the way, just to, yeah. to complement our previous discussion. But um, so it, it's, it's a uh, whole uh, garden of flowers. It's all different kinds of things, you know, from entertainment to a huge business to recreation to health to... You know, even finding your significant other. I mean, I met my wife on a tennis court, basically, right? So yeah, it's I, I can't you know distill it down to just one thing. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's too hard. Yeah, but that's I mean that's kind of the point of the question, though, right? Is, is I, it, yeah. everybody has this different attitude about why we're all out here doing these things. So that's why I love that question because it's so large and it's so nebulous. I I find often. Um, people's answers just come down to their experience and the thing that they take okay, most that, out of it. That I can give you. That, okay. that I can give you. You know, I do it for my physical well-being, for my right. personal physical well-being, well-being, but also for my psychological well-being. Because refereeing is a hell of a job. You exhausted mm -hmm. like after a game, a really tough one. You are brain dead. You know, yeah. this, this is taking like. But you learn. You discipline. You learn, you learn to be disciplined. You learn to um, take quick and immediate action and decide on the flip of a coin. And these are all things I enjoy and they actually help me not only in sports, but in all different kinds of other aspects of life. So it's the physical part, the enjoyment of just going out there, sweating um, your, your lungs out. And, um, and then also the, the training of discipline, which comes, you know, you try triathlete. I mean, mm -hmm. If you don't have discipline, you're not going to go anywhere, right? And so, right. So, it's it's these two elements that are probably the biggest parts in my in my life. Yeah. Uh, see, I got an answer out of you after all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, um, if people want to follow you, see your funny but um, accurate memes that you like to share. Where can people find you and kind of see what you're up to? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, the handle would be Posh Christian, just like my name, starting mm -hmm. with the last name. Um, happy to share that um, if you want to include it into your uh, stream. Um, other good resources would probably be LinkedIn. Um, it should be easy to find there. Uh, it should be easy to find me there, too. Yeah. I think these are probably the most, like, the two major outlets. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've got, you got a fair number of people following you on Twitter. So it should be yeah, pretty easy right. to that's identify right. you there. So that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I yeah. Just don't get it, but it's the case. Yeah. <laughs> and when it comes down to scientific stuff, I mean, PubMed is obviously the source for that kind of, uh, if, right. you're, if you're into heavy research, that's where you should go. But that's obviously true for any researcher. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Christian, thanks for spending some time with me today. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thanks for Take having care. me. Okay, you too.